You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today we have Jeremy Roll, an exceptional guest with more than 20 years in active investing in commercial estate and different aspects. How are you, Jeremy? I am doing well. How are you? Thanks so much for being with us today. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. Honestly, I just hope this is helpful for your listeners. For sure. As you can have a lot of insight and and different commercial spaces. Jeremy, your background is really super impressive on the last 20 years on different commercial real estate spaces from active to passive. And also, I would like to start, first of all, on the beginning. What was the beginning for you on the last 20 years? Yeah, and actually, I'd like to say anyone listening to this in Canada that I'm originally from Montreal and I spent half my life in Montreal and I moved to the U.S., you know, uh, maybe 20 years ago or just over 20 years ago. And I very much miss Canada and I very much miss my Timbits from Tim Hortons. So I'll stop there. But uh, those are my favorite. I'm like addicted to them. So um, so my whole passive investing journey started um, in 2001. This was after the dot-com crash. For, for those of you who are old enough to remember this, um, there was a dot-com crash with all the, the startups, dot-com tech startups. Mm-hmm. And um, I was watching this happen and I was investing um, in my, you know, 401k and my retirement plan, just in stocks and bonds, like everybody else. And what I realized is that this was the wrong way to invest for me as a fit personality fit. And the reason why is because I'm a very low risk guy. And I just to watch the stock market go up and down 30% and have that volatility, but also the lack of predictability for my long term retirement account 10, 20, 30, 40 years, it really bothered me. Because it just wasn't a good strategy for me, like for me to be comfortable with. So I started to look at different ways to invest. And what I concluded is if I could find some more predictable cash flow uh, and more stabilized, lower risk opportunities, that would be the best personality fit for me and the best longest term, more predictable path for me. So I started to, uh, in fact, my first investments, I started to try and just test out. I was living in the U.S. at the time. I was actually working for Disney headquarters in the U.S., but I started investing in Canada to start. And I started with lifelong friends of my family who were syndicating opportunities at that time. They were based in Montreal invested in several properties, office and retail and industrial in various parts of Canada, and then started to learn from them and then started to expand over time. So this was really a pursuit of me trying to find a better way to invest for myself. I think the first thing is you mentioned one really uh, important subject here that you were focusing also on the startups. So what was your, what is the difference on your criteria back on the starting days to now? What's happened to you when you're now deciding to start to passively invest on one of the startups or the actual businesses, what is the main point you're looking for when you're looking on a new investment pro- uh, investment opportunity? Sure. Yeah. So, so yeah, there's actually two answers to that. So just to clarify for everybody, we were, before we started recording this, we were talking about the fact that I do like 1% of my investing in startups and it's really on people I already know who I just have to make a bet on. And I like the idea, one, if I don't invest in random startups. Um, but um, so let me answer the more stabilized opportunities first. So when you're looking at the more stabilized opportunities, what's really interesting is that I've actually kept my target type of opportunity and criteria mostly the same. Um, the only things I've changed over time is the asset classes that interest me at a specific time. Mm. And that's changed based on, frankly, society and demand for different asset classes, et cetera. Mm. Um, but I've kept it mostly the same, which has been a big help. 
Um, and so I tend to focus on more stabilized properties that are maybe 80 to 100% occupied, may or may not have any value at upside. That's optional to me. The concept is I want to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow, and not much has changed because I live off the cash flow. I left the corporate world in 2007 from the cash flow after rotating my money from stocks and bonds into cash flow. Yeah. That took about five years. And so I look for predictability. It's always been the same. Um, now, I like tenant diversification. I, so I have certain minimum amounts of tenants or diversification I require depending on the asset class. Each asset class is different. Uh, I also obviously want to be with an experienced sponsor. Um, and... As far as location goes, I tend to avoid um, very volatile markets as far as pricing. So I wouldn't be investing in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Miami, New York, where the prices go up a lot and down a lot, right? And I also tend to avoid more tertiary markets that are just very small that may be more susceptible to downturns with recessions, et cetera. So I just try to look for more stability. That's really what it comes down to. Um, and I invest across most of the major asset classes except for hotels. Uh, including commercial real estate, multifamily, uh, and many different asset classes, also including single family in many different ways, and also including non-real uh, estate uh, as well. Uh, but the common thread is I'm looking for a low risk, more predictable cash flow in what I target. Um, so that's what I do, you know, high level on the, the non-startup side. On the startup side, I very, so I learned the hard lessons in the 2000 decade that, you know, and this is an important lesson for people out there who are considering startups. Sometimes, you know, what matters more is not whether the idea is great, but who's executing on it. And I would say the same thing with a, a syndication. Who you're making a bet on is more important than the property. The property is a very close second. Don't get me wrong. Same thing with startups. I invested in some great ideas where I didn't know the team very well. And ultimately, the team wasn't able to execute, even though the idea had a lot of potential. Hmm. And so what I did was, once I learned those lessons, I did a 180. And I said, I'm not investing in any more startups unless I know the person so well that I have to make a bet. Like I, I can't not make a bet on them because I'd be stupid. Okay. That, that's how I have to feel about the person. And then also two other important things. I have to understand the business line. I don't care how much I have to make a bet on somebody. If I can't understand the business, then that's probably not a good fit for me because I can't evaluate whether I agree with the business plan properly. And I also am very specific that I try to get in very early, I avoid later stage investments because I already do pretty well on the stabilized side. So if I'm going to swing for a grand slam home run, you mm. know, in a startup, I got to get in very, very early. So I tend to avoid um, startup investments where the valuation at the time is over 10 million. I want to be below 10 million uh, and preferably below 5 million, which is very difficult to find. Um, and so the reason is because I want to be able to get, if possible, 100x or more return as a possibility, yeah. like, you know, we're, so that's the other thing. The business has to be able to grow to an extent that I can see that happening, right? Some businesses can be great, but they may only grow to 20 million, 50 million. You're not going to get the 100X. So those are the criteria I follow with the startups. And I'm very specific about, I don't look at random startups. Mm -hmm. I actually try to avoid them because I, I actually love reading about startups and I watch Shark Tank, but it's fun. And I want to get, you know, back into the trap of not knowing the team. And I also tend to avoid later stage of being able to get into a startup because I'm not looking for a 5X. Even if something's a higher probability and lower risk, it's not the right fit for me. I can get a reasonable return with much lower risk on another type of investment. So sorry for the long answer, but that's how I look No, at it. it's, this is an answer we're looking for. This is to bring me to the second point, which is basically evaluation of your active partner or the sponsor. Which is bringing us to one of the questions is how you evaluate the different opportunities and different aspects like syndication or fund or rate. What is more appealing for you when you're dealing with different options? Everyone, ha every one of them has 
potential disadvantages and advantages. So yeah, on simplification okay. or REIT. Okay, so um, let's put uh, the quick answer for the REIT is that I hardly, I don't think I've ever invested in REIT, or maybe it's possible. Like I'm forgetting because I'm in a lot of things, but. The, the reason why that is, is because a REIT is typically much larger than what I'm investing in as far as size. And so normally I won't see a REIT structure uh, unless, let's say, it's a fund that's over 100 to 300 million. And typically largest fund I'm investing is 50 or 100 million because I target non-institutional opportunities. So because I stay away from institutional opportunities, because those tend to have not enough cash flow projected for me, the REITs are not really something I can really even comment on very much because they're not really on my radar very much. Okay. Um, now. When you say fund versus syndication, I'm guessing you mean like single property versus a fund, correct? Correct. Yeah. Okay. So um, I prefer to invest in a single property so I can really understand what I'm investing in. Mm. But I'm, I'm, I'm definitely am invested in many funds um, if that's not a choice. What I do, though, is if I have to invest in a fund with someone I've not invested with before, I don't have that much experience with, I will wait until they've acquired a bunch of assets so it's not a completely blind pool from the start. And then I'll evaluate all those assets and see if I agree what the fund has already purchased, probably more than 50% down the line. So I can see the majority of what the fund has purchased to decide if I agree with you know those funds. Because I could tell you stories of stuff I've both seen and even been involved in where you think they're buying X, but they buy Y. Or you think they're using a certain loan to value, but they don't actually do that. I'm in one fund right now that I really knew the operator well. I like them a lot, but now the average loan to value is 45 to 50%, which wasn't supposed to be the case. Mm. And the preferred return, this is many years ago, so the preferred return was supposed to go from eight to nine to 10 years, one, two, and three. Mm. You can't hit a 10% preferred return on a 50 or 45% loan to value. Yeah. Even if you're buying stuff at a seven cap, it's very difficult, you know, or a six cap, it's very difficult. So uh, good intentions and the risk is lower, but the cash flow, I wouldn't have chosen to have that amount of a loan to value, but I ended up in it. Right. So it's very important to be able to analyze what you're investing in. And that's the hard part about the funds. I want to make an important comment, though. So we're recording this in October of 2022. And the reason why I mention this is because what I have found over the years, over the 20 years, is that sponsors prefer to have a fund usually because it's easier for them. Right. They only have to raise capital with one offering document. And they don't have to do each property each time. Not sure if they're going to raise the money for that property. So they have the most leverage or the easiest time to raise funds towards the end of a cycle, right? That's when the most money is chasing less deals, right? Just fewer deals out there. So you're going to find as an investor that they're going to find the most percentage of funds at the end of a cycle, which just happened now between 2016 and 2022. Mm. And then I'm expecting that we're going to have more opportunities to invest in single assets once there's a reset, which I think we're in the middle of right now, mm. right? Um, and so I, I'm hoping that next year or the year after, I'm going to have access to more individual properties and probably less funds, still some funds, but less of a percentage of funds. So I think that will change. And I think it'll change again as we get through the next cycle towards the end of the cycle. So between the different uh, different uh, cycle stages, whatever in top or on down cycle, like right now, what was the change of heart for you when you're looking as a passive investor on returns? Like when you're looking on IRR, equity multiplier, let's say on the top of uh, the cycle, what was uh, your criteria? And when you had sure. a different recession like 2008, what was the different strategy for you? What you were yeah. looking for? Yeah, great question. So um, first thing to note, I know this is not common and most people listening to this don't, don't do this, but I actually don't pay attention to the IRR when I'm when I'm evaluating because I'm so dependent on the cash flow. I look at the cash flow targets. The truth is, 
because I, I have a very specific box and very tight box that I target, usually the IR lands in a certain range based on everything else, but like all the cash flow following a certain place, right? right. But I, I focus on the cash flow, projected cash flow. So what I do is I, I will wait for a cycle to reset. And then when I think we're near a bottom, I will take a look at what's reasonable for cash flow targets per asset class, okay, depending on cap rates, interest rates. And I'll set minimum targets for year one projected cash flow. And for, let's say, a 10-year average annualized cash flow, because I like to be more into longer-term deals with fixed-rate loans. And so um, I'll set that for, uh, usually, in fact, I can set it across all, it's the same for all the asset classes. And then what happens is that as the cycle goes along, some asset classes get more expensive more quickly than others. So let me give you an example. In 2009, um, a lot of single-family foreclosures, apart, the investors knew apartments were going to increase in demand. People had to rent something, right, if they were foreclosed. So there was a ton of apartment purchases between 2009 and 2013, okay, as a result. And so what happened is that the cap rates compressed most quickly in multifamily compared to anything else, because that's where the investors, that's where they all went to chase those deals. So um, I'm telling you this because each asset class acts differently through a cycle, right, in terms of the demand and supply and demand. So what I do is, uh, I'll have a specific year one criteria on minimum cash flow, a specific average annualized cash flow targeted net to investors. And each time an asset class gets to the point where the market rate of the average deal doesn't meet that either of those requirements anymore, I will drop off that asset class, continue to invest in unique opportunities in that asset class that can still make sense. But otherwise, I'm no longer investing in normal deals and at market rate deals in that asset class. And so if you look at the past cycle, just to make it easy, I was dropping off asset classes between 2013 and 2016. And the last asset class that dropped off was mobile home parks because they came from the highest cap rates and the highest cash flow. And people were chasing the cash flow at the end. And that's where it finally got bought down. You know, people were looking for cash flow and they were looked everywhere else first. And then they went to mobile home parks last. And that was the last one. And mm -hmm. so in the, since the end of 2016, I've been on the sidelines except for unique opportunities. And I've still done a lot of investing, but you have to find unique opportunities at that point. So that's the way that I work. So it keeps it somewhat simple because if I can create targets and it also keeps me out of trouble, right? Because if I create targets and I really hold to them, I'm not going to invest in something that I think is getting too expensive. You mentioned two points here I would like to ask about. First of all, you mentioned that you prefer to work on fixed rate opportunities. A second point that you uh were in the sideline because of we were ba basically on the top of the cycle so on the first one do you mean that you avoid opportunities with interest only uh interest only or you mean that it's because fixed rates usually go with five the four five the the, the big banks with uh, institutional opportunities is this a correct approach or no, so actually, let me clarify that. It's a good question. So when I say fixed rate, I mean the interest rate is fixed. It can there can be some interest only part of that. There can be no interest only part of that. I okay. have my own criteria for like I'm not comfortable going into a ten year interest only scenario, for example, because I want some of the loan to be amortized and paid down. Okay. But it's more about the rate for the loan. The interest rate has to be fixed from the start. Okay, and that's what I was referring to. Sorry for any confusion. No, no worries. The second point you mentioned that you've been on the sideline. What was the reasoning for for being on the sideline on the last, last six years? Yeah. So that was because I, I thought everything was too expensive. And so just to clarify, like now in retrospect, it seems like that was way too early, right? Yeah. Obviously, we know that. But here's what people have to understand. We were actually, as of 2017, 
this, the economy was slowing and President Trump in the U.S. actually instilled stimulus in 2018 during a very unusual time, okay, because there, we weren't in a downturn. And he did it to keep it going for his reelection. So mm. what he did is he extended, in my opinion, the um, the cycle by a couple more years, okay? Then actually, based on a lot of indicators, including the inverted yield curve, we were going to have a recession around about March of 2020, just as the pandemic was starting, okay? Mm. That was all the indicators. So so he had extended it a couple of years, and then all the crazy stimulus in the U.S. extended it a couple more years. But now those two extensions are done. So I want to point out, we actually had a record long cycle as well, like way a record long cycle in the U.S. in terms of how long this went. And it was because of those two rounds of stimulus that wouldn't normally occur. So I went on the sidelines at the end of 2016 based on a lot of indicators. And, and actually, so you can imagine, let's take back 2005 to 2008. I was on the sidelines as of 2005, mostly. Okay. Mm. And it was a long three or four years because people thought I was crazy. If I would have been in the sidelines for 2017 to 2019 or 20, that would probably seem more reasonable than 2017 mm. to 2022. But I just you know that that's really what really happened is all that. So that's how I followed it because I'm a very big fan of being objective and following the data. So that's what happened. So let me ask you about this because this is a, a really a good uh, portion of helping a new passive investor. How you... Uh, we're following the market uh, to understand the market fundamental and the projection for early recession. Because everyone, as you mentioned, everyone was talking about 2020, but yeah, it happened like sure. essential for two years. Yeah. So, um, so I, so one thing I absolutely do is I do a ton of reading. Um, it's a combination of reading, watching some YouTube videos that are financial related as well. Mm-hmm. But I do at least two to three hours a day, every day. Uh, now, when I'm on vacation, I do less, but I don't do zero. Okay, but yeah. pretty much every week I'm working, I'm doing it every day, um, even to the extent of maybe a couple hours on the weekend every day. And that's because I feel the need for myself to stay on top of the data, yeah. because the data is what is driving my investment decisions. But what's so important is that because I invest so far out, so think about it: if I get involved in a deal today that has a ten-year fixed-rate loan, which is what I normally target, I have to think about ten years out what's going to be happening. Right. Mm-hmm. I have to try to avoid the landmines 10 years out. So what does that mean? I got to stay on top of economic trends. Mm-hmm. So, for example, with the Internet going, I stopped investing in office and retail in 2015. OK, because that's where I said to myself, this is way too dangerous at this point. I don't know where the retail is going to be in five or 10 years from now. OK, mm-hmm. I don't know where office is going to be in five or 10 years from now based on more people working from home, telecommuting. Et cetera. This is way before the pandemic. Right. Yes. And I'm not I'm not saying that I. I'm not saying the pandemic had anything to do with it. Frankly, it didn't. It was just the trends of what was going on with Zoom and other things, right? Mm. So I try to stay ahead of the curve on what's coming up as well as the data. Now, one of the best indicators I like to use to keep it really simple is I look at the inverted yield curve in the US. Mm. Um, And that typically will give a six to 24 month um, indicator of when a recession is probably going to come up from a probability perspective, usually six to 18 months. And so that's my favorite because it's a very high probability that it will work out like that. Um, there's other other indicators you can also you know put on top of that, but if you want to keep it really simple and just one, that's a the great youth. indicator to watch. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think as an advantage player on the game, how you how you see the similarities between the current recession and what happened on 2008 from the market indication, especially on the commercial real estate. Yeah. Boy, it was very different in 2008, but I'll tell you the one commonality that I'm starting to see now more in the media is that um, uh, jobs directly and indirectly related to real estate 
is a very large part of the economy and can actually put the economy in recession on its own. And what is now people are starting to see is that because interest rates shot up so quickly and now everything's slowing down so quickly on the real estate, both commercial and residential, we have the possibility that this recession could once again be caused in some part, or it will be caused in some part for sure by real estate because it's slowing so quickly. So that's a very common uh, thing that's happening. Um, the degree of real estate affecting this downturn is probably going to be less than what happened before because it was just carnage, you know, in 2008, 2009 with ownership pricing and all kinds of stuff. Um, and it's different this time. I can actually go into details as to why, but it's very different this time on the residential side, at least in the U.S. In Canada, I know it's different than the U.S. Um, and they won't have the same impact uh, this time for a number of mathematical reasons. But um, so what's difficult this time and very difficult for me to really judge is between having... Um, inflation not keeping up with wages, having um, very low unemployment in the U.S., which will eventually increase and it's already start, you know, we're already seeing layoffs. Mm. And with just the entire inflation factor makes it much more difficult to take the past and understand what's going to happen this time, right? And that even translates to pr uh, rent prices and commercial residential real estate, et cetera. Um, so that's what's making it challenging. And of course, for someone like me, who's pretty low risk, if if there's uncertainty or lack of clarity, it's better for me to wait and watch what happens versus actually take the risk. Because what I really like about now, October 2022, is that in my opinion, there's a high probability of a recession, um, you know, in the uh, probably in 2023, um, which means that I don't have a lot of time to wait until that happens. But the risk is very high because there's two risks, one of which people are not talking about, I think. And I think it's a much bigger risk than people understand. There's interest rates going up to increase cap rates to reduce pricing, and we're already seeing that. That's a, that's not even a, a, a that's a, not even a speculation. That's a fact right now. Okay. Yeah. The other one though that hasn't happened yet is increase in unemployment means layoff. Uh, sorry, increase in interest rates is is now reducing the pace of the economy, which means layoffs. Increase in unemployment means that there's less people who can afford to rent apartments. They go back home. They live together. They double up with other people that increases supply of any type of residential units. And with increased supply, you're gonna have reduced pricing. And I think what people cannot picture because prices, rent prices have been going up so much is that the typical domino effect of a recession reduces rent prices. And so what you have to be very careful with as a real estate investor right now is the combination of rent prices coming down, which means NOI will come down at the same time as multiples are coming down because cap rates are going up because interest rates are going up. You have a compounded effect. It's not just about the cap rate changes with the interest rates. It's about the NOI coming down when expenses are going up very quickly at the same time. And then you have a compounded effect on the value of the property. And for someone like me, I prefer to stay on the solid lines and wait until the price adjusts versus take the risk of where if the price could adjust. And so I have a lot of potential reward and not very much a timeline to wait to see what happens. That's a good scenario for me where I don't have to wait very long. What I don't see so far is the impact on the rent increase because right now the affordability to own became really hard. Yes. But at the same time, I don't see any indication of rent control, especially on, on blue states. Uh, there's no rent control almost all of them. So, okay. So how you see is, uh, the actual market shifting for a yeah. lower rent prices? 
Yeah. So what normally will happen in a recession is that you will have people lose their jobs. They can no longer afford that apartment, right? And they have a couple of choices. They can either trade down to a lower class apartment. Some of them can afford that. Some of them can't based on their savings. But remember, they're going to apply for an apartment. They don't have a job. They may not get that apartment, right? They may not qualify for it. If that doesn't happen, then they'll either go back home and now they're not a renter anymore, or they'll actually turn to their friend who maybe has a job and says, let me come live with you. I'll split the rent with you, right? And if the next person doesn't have a job too, they may have to double up with somebody else or triple up with somebody else. So what happens is you're taking away some of the demand for rental units, mm. right? People who can afford them. What happens, of course, is that once demand goes down, if it's the same supply, the prices have to come down because you're going to have increased vacancy. Mm. And that's how the prices come down. So it's just a regular domino effect of recession, assuming there's increase in unemployment, which happens in a recession. So that's what's going to happen. The reason why you're not seeing very much of it yet is because the unemployment has not really started in a major way yet. Yeah, this, this basically is the first indication, which is, which is again, it's what's happening in the US. Uh, the unemployment rate is really great in the different states, even in Canada. But this is basically what we're waiting for on the mid of, I think, mid of 2023 to see the actual impact of um, the uh, unemployment rates. So let me ask you something else about uh, commercial space based on your experience on the different uh, downturns, what is, in your opinion, the best uh, commercial spaces performing well during recession? Yeah, so, great question. Yeah. yeah. So um, I look for more predictable cash flow. And mm. what tends to perform well in a downturn, there's three obvious ones to me. Um, one of them would be mobile home parks. Um, without getting into too much detail, if you invest in mobile home parks where it's a very high percentage owner-occupied as opposed to rental base, then those, those owner-occupied units probably are not going to go anywhere because if they have to go somewhere, they normally unfortunately can't afford to move their house and they're going to lose their entire house. Hmm. So to them, they try to stay there and that tends to be a very stable place to be from a cash flow perspective. Hmm. Um, another one is self-storage. So what's interesting about self-storage is that you know, and by the way, all of this I'm telling you is with the right manager and the right location. Location is very important. Mm -hmm. But with self-storage, location is particularly important. So before we start this, we we're talking about Arizona. A lot of people moving to Arizona, right? A lot of people moving to the Sun Belt in the U.S. So imagine you're a lot of population came into Texas, Arizona, Florida, and you own a self-storage facility, good location there. Now what happens? People start losing their jobs. They have to go live at home or they have to go live with another person. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of stuff. They don't want to just get rid of their stuff. They're going to go rent a, a storage unit, uh, at least temporarily, to get through the recession, right, until they can afford an apartment. Unit. You, you can have demand going up in a self-storage unit at that time. So in the right locations, it can do very well in a downturn. I will say nationally, overall, there was a slight decrease. It was about maybe a 5%. I think the self-storage association, the national one, I think they said there was a, on average a 5% a decrease in rents overall. Mm. Um you know, or income overall, which is still very good. You know, it's really holding out pretty well because you can't expect any asset class to do better in a recession necessarily. There's definitely um, a force downwards on all income during a recession because everyone's spending less, everyone's concerned. And so there's a whole psychological aspect to it, right? Um, the third asset class that can also do relatively well in a downturn is definitely multifamily. Um, it depends on which multifamily you have, where it's located. The rents usually do go down, but they may not go down as much as industrial, for example, mm. uh, may not go down as much as retail, for example. And so 
those are the top three most obvious ones to me coming to mind. But I want to be clear to everybody. I'm not trying to say that if you invest in a mobile home park, that your rents are going to go up necessarily during a recession. They're just going to have a harder time going down during recession, right? That's so your income levels may decrease, but won't, may, won't be as much as some other asset classes. The stability on mobile home park is different, on, especially in recession, I think. Yeah. But again, the important thing about mobile home parks, you have a very high percentage of park-owned home, uh, sorry, of uh, owner-occupied homes versus park-owned homes. Park-owned homes meaning rentals. When you have a lot of rentals in a mobile home park, just like everywhere else, people can move very quickly, and that's a whole different ballgame. So what is your opinion about passive investor holding right now to invest, especially uh, for a new investor? What is your advice to passive investor when they're dealing with, uh, with opportunity in the next six to 12 months? Yeah. So you're talking about someone brand new or just in general? Uh, there's two. Yeah, I think brand new. Uh, a lot. Uh, okay. Depend. Depend. To be honest, in both both scenarios. Okay. So someone brand new. Um, if you're listening to this and you're trying to figure out what to do, there's two things I'd recommend. And I'm not a financial advisor, an investment advisor, accountant, attorney. So just just my perspective. You know, one person's opinion as an investor. So um, two things I think are very important. Number one is uh, make sure that you end up educating yourself and end up with an opinion. And it's, you're allowed to have any opinion you want about where we are in the economic cycle and the real estate cycle. Mm. But don't just go blindly invest tomorrow because you just saved up enough money to invest. The timing is very important. I like to tell people, I can invest in the best opportunity and the best asset uh, in the best location in Beverly Hills in 2007 with the best operator and be foreclosed in 2010. And I can invest in the worst location with the worst operator in 2010 and made a lot of money by 2017. Yeah. It's true. And so the timing is very, very important. And a lot of people that I see don't take the time who are new to get a under full understanding of where we are in the cycle and whether or not they think the timing is right. And if you don't have an answer to that, I think it makes sense to take the time to learn and to read to make sure you have an answer to that for yourself because it's a very important point. Number two for new investors is if you're just starting out, I always recommend focusing on one asset class first to get the core understanding and the base understanding and try that first. And because you can usually take about 80% of what you learn about one asset class like multifamily and then apply it to something else like mobile home park self-storage with some tweaks. But don't get distracted by 10 asset classes. You want to really understand and learn one asset class, learn it well, because it'll be very helpful for you across all the asset classes in the future. And the one I usually recommend people start with is the one they understand the best. So if you grew up in a mobile home park, start with mobile home parks. You're going to understand the business. You're going to understand how they work. Go with that. If you currently live in an apartment, you've only ever lived in an apartment, you grew up in an apartment with your family, go with apartments. Mm -hmm. A lot of people like starting with apartments because if you think about it, if you look at any major city uh, to invest, uh, there's usually more apartment units than homes and more apartment units than anything else, right? There's many more apartment buildings for every self-storage uh, unit, for example, right? Or building. So a lot of people like starting with multifamily because it's the easiest one to access as far as volume of opportunities to review. So that can also be a factor. But I always tell people, go with the one you understand first. So it's a lower learning curve, right? Right off the bat. Uh, but then focus on one first, try it a couple of times, and then you can start to learn about a second one, see the differences. You can tweak what you understand about that asset class and go into the next one. Um, so those are two very important things for someone who's brand new. For someone who is experienced, I would say... Um, you know, be very careful with what you're doing right now. Uh, make sure that you think it's a good time for yourself. And if you're going to invest, make sure you invest with a business plan that can perform well during an economic downturn, should we have one in, in the near future, right? 
Um, also make sure that the loan terms you're looking at make a lot of sense. Right now, if you assume we may have a recession, the loan terms are gonna be very, very important. If you have too much leverage, that can hurt you. If you have the wrong loan terms, even without too much leverage, that can really hurt you. Mm. Um, I would pay a lot. I mean, that's the same for any deal at any time, but when you're going in, you know, possibly into recession, that's particularly important. So I would pay very close attention to that and make a decision for yourself whether the risk is worth it right now or whether it's worth waiting, which is what I'm doing. You know, there's a thousand ways to invest. None of them are wrong. Some people I know are investing all the time right now. That's the best fit for them. Just be very careful right now. I think no, not, none of us has a crystal ball about the actual market uh, recession when it's going to end. But from your perspective, the best time to start as a passive investor is on the top. The, no, I'm sorry, on the bottom of the cycle, which is potentially within the 12 to 18 months from now. Yeah, that's buy low, sell high. Not buy high, let's sell low. Correct. So I agree with you. Yes, buy low, sell high. <laughs> I think the best approach now, everyone is bidding on even buying new new deals is in, at end of 2023, once everything settled. Look, usually it takes a couple of years for real estate to really bottom out. So if we assume that the adjustment started around March or April of 2022, then you would expect it to bottom out sometime in 2024. Now, the yes. good news is it doesn't usually rebound very quickly unless... We have an unusual period where the interest rates move so quickly that that will change things quickly this time, right? Mm. Putting that aside, normally it bottoms out and then it takes a few years to really come back up. So it's not usually a rush, right? So, you know, if you really want to be careful, you can wait until you really see stability for a year or two and then go in and then you know you're at a really good time. But I do agree with you that theoretically what you're proposing makes sense. But here's the problem. There's been so much government intervention and, and Fed intervention in the U.S. that what I do is I take the data, objective data like you just did, and go with it. But if you go with it, and there's all this intervention, you can throw all the data out the window. So who knows what's really going to happen? Because that's what's yeah. been happening. That's why I told you. I've been on the sidelines since 2016. Yeah. Fundamentally, I was correct. I, the data was correct. But realistically, I was wrong for years because the government stepped in a couple of times and did something crazy. You know. Right. So, so that's something you have to keep in mind as an investor as well right now. It's a very difficult time, more difficult than ever, really, to figure out where things are going because the Fed can step in and say, sorry, we're doing this instead, you know? Yeah, I think we have to look on two things, as I mentioned, uh, the downturn as a yield and the inflation rates to understand where we, where, where we are because potentially the Fed was going to try to push it to 2% as much as it can. So this is uh, the main game now. Yeah, I, well, I agree with you for sure right now. Can they change their mind later? Yes, that's the problem, right? So you and I can only go with what they say now, and that's the best we can do. Yeah. But you also can't write off there's some probability they'll change their mind at some point. But what so, is going to be the actual turn point for you to start think about? Let's start. Well, so let me let me be clear. I'm always investing. Um, I'm actually making, uh, I made an investment last week. In fact, I made two investments last week. I'm making an investment in a couple more weeks on something else. I Believe it or not, even though I'm on the sidelines for multifamily, I've invested in probably seven to 10 multifamily deals in the last 18 months. Okay. Okay. okay but they're all very unique. So mm -hmm. I invested of all those, they've all been either low income housing tax credit and most of them have been tax abated deals. Mm -hmm. And those to me with that twist made it make sense at that timing, even today when in normally a normal rocket rate deal wouldn't make sense. So there's always deals out there. Um, so it's not that I'm sitting doing nothing. Okay. In fact, I forgot I made two more investments this week, but that, that was just treasuries or whatever. Right. So um, 
So what I so what where I'm looking right now though is that I believe that we've already had a price adjustment of about 10 to 15 percent. Let's just take multifamily so okay. far. Okay, on What's average, this, I think. Okay. What's that more than this? Some people will say 15 to 20. Yeah. And I believe that we probably are going to have another 10 to 15 percent to go. Yeah. Um, and I say this because I'm only saying that. Because the stock market, in my opinion, hasn't taken the second leg down yet. And when it does, there's going to be, we haven't had the proper fear and capitulation. And the reason why I can tell you this is objectively is because the VIX, the volatility index in the stock market, hasn't gotten above 45, which is no, normally happens in a downturn. It's all mathematical, right? So knowing that, we haven't had the proper capitulation. People aren't really scared yet. We haven't had a full cleansing. People haven't lost enough of the net worth yet. And that's when you have a proper bottoming, right? Mm -hmm. So... Um, I think we're going to have a ways to go still. Uh, also, the mathematics behind increase in interest rate, this much increase has to adjust the returns to make it sense for people to want to invest as well and actually for investors to move forward. So there's a lot of factors that I think we're going to see another 10 to 20% decrease. When I can see maybe a 30% adjustment, 35% adjustment total, right? I'll start to be very comfortable. It might only get to 25 and maybe I'll learn that over time. But right now, if I see that, I'll go in. Otherwise, I'll wait. For sure. I think as a final question would be how you see your superpower, how you define your superpower. Um, I'm going to put it a different way. I don't I don't have a superpower. Uh, I think that that the, what I'm very lucky to have is a lot of experience and time. Mm -hmm. So I've learned from mistakes. I've learned from cycles. And as you can tell, I formulated very specific criteria to make it easier for me to filter out deals now, right? And really understand what I'm focused on. And that's just a question of time. So my superpower, I guess, is the fact that I've been investing for 20 years, right? That doesn't that doesn't make me any different than anybody else who's been investing it's for 20 years. It's important, I be, think. I think it's a yeah, experience. It, it, it's important, but my point is not, it's not a superpower, it's just time, right? So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm no different than somebody else who's had a lot of time to learn a lot of things, so. How's the people can approach you? On yeah, sure. Media? Yeah, anyone's welcome to reach out to me. I don't have a website or anything. So the easiest way to reach me is my email. Mm -hmm. So my email address is jroll, J-R-O-L-L, -L -L, at Roll Investments, R-O-L-L, -L, investments with an S, dot com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. Anyone's welcome to reach out to me. Happy to help anyone any way I can. Thank you a lot, Jeremy, for your time today. And really happy to bring you again to talk about recession and the next uh, top of the cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just want to thank you for having me today. I hope this was helpful for your listeners. Thanks a lot.